Well, good morning, everybody. We are in chapter 12 of the story. We are going through the entire Bible in the course of 31 weeks, and we're using a tool to help us do that. This is the story, and uh, many of you have received a copy of that and been going through this with us. And, and I just want to say, as we get into chapter 12 here, is that if you've ever felt in your life that you have messed up so badly that God could never forgive you, then I believe that chapter 12 has something very rich to say to you today. If you've ever felt like, you know what, I, I don't know if, um, if, if I could ever be approved of by God again, that, and that maybe if I just go to church enough and do enough good things that somehow I'll fall back into favor with God. If you've ever thought that, then chapter 12 has a real message for you today. If you've ever wrestled with, you know what, God could just never love me. I think I'm just too far gone. Maybe one day, maybe I'll get lucky and at the end he'll, he'll approve of me. Chapter 12 has something for you today. Uh, go ahead and take out your story Bibles to chapter 12. Where we are at in the story is that we saw a transition last week where King Saul, the first king of Israel, the people cried out wanting a king and so God said, okay, I'll give you a king. And King Saul was not a very good king, was he? King Saul did his own thing. He didn't follow after the Lord, and he was very rebellious. And so God took his anointing off of King Saul, and he anointed another king. And who was this king? King David. Now, it took some time for David to become king, and God orchestrated in his own way, in his upper story, how David would become king. But now, where we pick up in the story, King David is now the king of all of Israel, and it's at a season when everything that he does seems to be going really well. He, everything he touches turns to gold. His armies are winning many battles. His ex kingdom is expanding all over the place. And David finds himself in the season of life where things couldn't be better, and he is at rest, and he is at peace in his palace. And you could honestly say that he's probably sitting around with his feet up eating grapes going, life is pretty good. But then we come to chapter 12. This is the equivalent of 2 Samuel chapter 11 in the Bible. And what we're going to see today is that everything is about to change. We're going to see a moment in David's life where he lets his guard down and he made some tragic choices and it causes a pivotal shift in David's life. It causes a shift in his family. And it certainly causes a shift in the whole kingdom of Israel. So do you have chapter 12 open? This is page 161 of your storybooks. And the scriptures will all be on the screens behind me as well. 2 Samuel chapter 11 verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Reba, but David remained in Jerusalem. Let me just point out a little detail. It says, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war. That's kind of an odd thing to say, isn't it? We live in a day with a country whose military is ready to go day or night, rain or shine, bad weather, good weather. They're always ready and mobile. Not so back in David's day. Yeah, there was a season and there was an off season when it came to war. And this is a little detail about how society was back then. Hey, it's that time of year when the armies go out and beat up on everybody. That, that was this time of year. But David doesn't go with him. He stays back in Jerusalem. Let's keep reading. One evening, David got up from his bed and he walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very 
beautiful. So you can kind of get the scene. We're all smart people. We know what's happening here. David's already gone to bed, um, and, and, but for some reason, he gets out of bed. It's in the evening time, and he decides to go take a stroll out on the roof. And we read this, and we're saying, well, what's the big deal with that? It's just an innocent stroll. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's, there's just nothing at all. And I'm really careful. I, I like the Bible to just speak for the Bible. I don't feel like I, I need to add a whole lot to it. The Bible's clear enough as it is. And I certainly don't want to read anything into it. But there is a tendency to say it was just a casual, innocent walk. And I would have to ask the question, how do we know that it was a casual, innocent walk? How, how do we know that? Is that something we assume? I, like I said, I don't want to read anything into it, but I'm at least comfortable wondering about maybe what was going through David's mind. I'm comfortable to wonder that way because I myself am a male, and many of you in this room are men, and we understand better than anyone else how the male brain operates and works. My guess is there is a chance, I think it's probable, that David probably already knew what he might see on this innocent walk along the roof of his palace. Maybe, possibly, perhaps David has taken many strolls on, on the roof of his palace. Maybe he knows what he might be happening within view up there. We don't know for sure, but I believe that David's stroll on the roof that evening was his first in a whole long line of mistakes that will radically change his life in the future. We kind of talk about in our culture as like the domino effect. Well, that was the first domino to fall, and the rest are going to fall after that. In, in David's world, that little stroll along the roof was the first domino, and we're going to see very quickly a number of dominoes begin to fall. It seems innocent. It seems like... Uh, you know, he's just catching some night air. But did he go looking for something? I can't prove it, but he ended up in a place and the door for sin was open. Now, I, I need to stop right there, and I think it would do us well. I think every single one of us would do ourselves a favor if we would just pay attention to a few things that we already see in this story. I believe that we have to be very careful today to not let things that seem just innocent, everyday things in life to open the door of sin. We have to be careful not to be intentional about what innocent things may lead us into. Let me just give you a couple of scenarios because I think it's easy to say David's on an innocent stroll and he came across something. Well, there's a lot of things in this life that seem innocent at the beginning but lead us to other things. Let me just tell you this. Going to the gym to get a good workout is an innocent thing. We would say, you know what, that's a good thing. You should go and you should work out. It's good for your health, and that's a good thing. But you know what's an easy thing to do is to say, you know what, I normally go at 5.30, but I'm going to go at 6.30 today because internally you would never admit this, but you say, because the view's a little better at 6.30. You understand what I'm saying? Maybe you could say, you know what, um, I'm going to take the kids to the community pool and I, we're going to go, um, but you know, instead of going at, at 1 o'clock, we're going to go at 2.30 because in your heart you feel like somebody might be there at 2.30 and you know they're not going to be there at 1. It's an innocent thing, right? It's an innocent I'm taking the kids to the pool. Uh, I'm going to the gym. These are everyday innocent things, but there is a tendency. There is an opportunity. David was in the same boat. An innocent walk turned out to be something not so innocent. Maybe he planned this. Maybe he didn't. 
Maybe you find yourself at work sometime and, and you are assigned a project. And you're a married person and the person you're assigned to work on this project with is also a married person but a member of the opposite sex. And um, it's an innocent thing, right? Well, we have to do this. It's a work thing. We have to be careful and aware of the environments and the situations we find ourselves in. Sometimes project that works leads on to say, hey, why don't we just carry this over at lunch? And we find ourselves having lunch with somebody from the opposite sex. It's an innocent thing. Everybody's got to eat lunch. We're going to talk about work as well. But we have to be careful about the situations. And so I see a moment in David's life. He was not careful. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And maybe it was innocent. Maybe it was not. But what he saw there took him down a path that would change his life. So David sees up on the roof. He, he sees this woman taking a bath. How long does he stand there? We have no idea, but he stands there long enough to make this observation. Now that's a beautiful woman. He stands there long enough for his mind to entertain certain things. He stood there long enough that his imagination transitioned into action. And that action we see on page 161. Here's what happens. David sent someone to find out about her. All right, this is the next domino that's going to fall. We have gone from, hey, I'm just out getting some fresh air, to now I'm going to take some of these thoughts and I'm going to put them into action. This is taking it to the next level. And here's what he finds out. The man came back and said, she is Bathsheba the daughter of Elam, and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Okay, I don't mean to be going so slow. There's just important details that are happening. I've got to point out. This is the point in the domino effect that maybe it could have stopped. This is the point where common sense, reality, should have taken over, and David was like, wake up, what are you doing? I can't do this. And, and now he finds out some connections here. The first thing he learns is this. She is a married woman and he's a married man. So in other words, there should be none of this happening at all. But that did not register in David's mind. Um, that was a warning sign that he did not heed. The second warning sign that he paid no attention to was who this woman is related to. She is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Well, who in the world is that? You know, the first time you read through this, that this was a brand new moment in Scripture for you this week, Uriah the Hittite, Hittite probably means nothing. But if you were to read the rest of the book of 2 Samuel, you'd come to chapter 23, and you would come upon a list, and on verse 39 of that list, you would find the name Uriah the Hittite, and you know who he was? He was one of David's mighty men. I don't want to get into the whole history, but David had a group of guys that we would just call them the, his Rambos, okay? These were his super fighters. They were his close guys. They were his, Uriah is one of his guys. And in verse 34 of that same list, we find the name of Elam. That is Bathsheba's father, and he's a mighty man as well. Not only that, you keep digging, you learn that, that Bathsheba has a grandfather named Iphotel, and he is one of David's closest advisors. Now, I threw a lot of names and a lot of relationships at you. Let me sum it up. Because the red flags did not stop him from moving forward. Bathsheba is a married woman, and she is the daughter and the wife of two of David's mighty men. 
and she is the granddaughter of one of David's closest advisors. Friends, there is trouble written all over this scenario, okay? And David didn't change course, and the dominoes begin to fall. And this is a good place to stop for just a minute. Because especially if this is your first time to encounter this, you might come to this conclusion. Hey, what happened to all that man after God's own heart stuff we read about last week? What did God see inside of David? He saw a man after his own heart, and he saw a man who would do everything that God wanted him to do. And this guy doesn't sound like that, does he? How could he be so dedicated to God and be on a path for destruction so quickly and what we have here is probably one of the oldest lower story tragedies that you're going to find in all of scripture it's it's a sad story and it still happens to godly people today so one minute david is god's reassured king of this special nation that he's building he's successful in every way he's a righteous man with a pure heart before god and the next minute he is going his own direction and he's satisfying his own appetites and was like what was he thinking how could he be so dedicated to god and let his guard down so quickly you know i think it's just my opinion i think you'd probably share it with me to some level that when the phrase that says the bigger they are, the harder they fall, you know, familiar with that one? Is at play here? And we see it happening all over the world. We look at people who the world might say, oh, that's a very successful person. We look at some of our politicians. We look at some of these businessmen that seem to have got everything figured out. We look at the entertainment world. We look at these sports figures who have fallen. And yes, we even look at, at men of God who have fallen. In almost every case, there is a common denominator uh, that they had just like with David. There was a level of success. There was a, a level of income. That was, there was this sense of power. There was a sense of fame. There was a sense of, look what I have accomplished. And the Bible speaks of that as pride. And what does the Bible say? Pride often goes before a what? A fall. And so here is this, this dangerous thing that David's involved with. It's a dangerous thing that people live with today that sometimes when things are going great and the success is at every turn, we don't really need God anymore. We don't really think about God like, like we used to. And I believe that you know, not just in this situation, but in a lot of different situations, this is just one of them. When things are going great and life couldn't be getting any better, we need to be careful because the enemy is very crafty. So David, things are about to get a whole lot worse. Um, David is about to do the cover-up of all cover-ups. He learns that... Uh, that Bathsheba is carrying his child. And so David's like, I got to figure something out here. So he, I'm just going to kind of summarize the story. He eventually has, sends orders to his troops to put Uriah, this is Bathsheba's husband, on the front lines. And then I want you guys to kind of pull back and expose him to the enemy and kill him. And that's exactly what 
happens. So Uriah dies, and so David takes up Bathsheba to be his wife. So the cover-up is now complete. But can I point something out to you that David is going to learn firsthand here shortly, is that you cannot hide things from God. You cannot do it. You know, the longer I'm a Christian and the, the, the longer I'm a minister and, 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 uh, and the, trying to be a good dad and, and all of those things, I'm just becoming more and more aware that God sees everything and nothing escapes God's notice. And that is really good news. That God sees all. He's involved in the details of our lives. You can't hide anything from Him. David can't hide things from God. We can't hide things from God As the story continues, we know that David felt like he got away with it. That David felt like that everything was going to be just fine now. Until one day, a prophet by the name of Nathan comes a-calling. And Nathan says, David, I got this story I want to share with you. And Nathan tells a story about a rich guy that had all this stuff and how he takes something from a poor guy who had hardly anything. And this irritated and it made David angry. Look on page 163. Here's David's response to that story. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, The jaw-dropper of all jaw-droppers. David, you are that man. It's you. I'm not a mind reader, but I do believe that that, uh, David thought he had gotten away with it. I do think he was at a point that he knew it was wrong, but as long as nobody else really saw what was going on, that he could just take Bathsheba as his wife and life would be good. But I think when Nathan came and exposed him by that confrontation, I think it was in that moment you could have heard a pin drop in the room. You are the man. I think we ask this question. How is King David any better than King Saul? I mean, David's the second king. Saul had the anointing taken away. And we look at their stories, and there's some similarities in them. Both King Saul and King David, they both messed up to the nth degree. Both of them were confronted by prophets of God about their sin. But yet Saul loses God's blessing for what he did. But it seems like David never did lose God's blessing. So how can we differentiate? How are these two guys any different? Well, I can tell you the biggest difference between King Saul and King David. They both sinned. They were both confronted by prophets. But only one of them fell on his face before God in repentance. And that's the difference. When Saul was confronted by Samuel the prophet, Saul tried to justify, Saul tried to make up excuses. He never owned up to to his sinful behavior. He was too proud to admit that he did anything wrong, and so God took the blessing. But David, on the other hand, he responds to Nathan's accusation with three simple words. He says, I have sinned. And he tells the truth, and he takes on full responsibility for the error of his ways. And he admits, I've done all of this wrong. And, and this confrontation by Nathan, this admission of guilt and recognition that he had sinned against God, well, if you read the rest of the story, you know that this was almost more than what David could bear, this recognition. 
Now, we do get a glimpse, a really good glimpse, into what David was feeling because King David was also a wonderful writer. And what King David would do is that when he would go through parts of his life, he would write those things down. There's a book in your Bible. It's kind of right smack in the middle. It's called the Book of Psalms. Are you familiar with it? David wrote many of the Psalms in that book, and a lot of those Psalms reflect what David was feeling and thinking when he was experiencing different things that we read about in other parts of the Old Testament. So in Psalm chapter 51, this is what David wrote after he was confronted by Nathan. And we get a glimpse into a very raw, a very layers peeled back view of a man who is really wrestling with his sin. This is found in your storybooks as well. This is page 163. It's the equivalent of Psalm chapter 51, verse one through two. And this is what David says in that moment. He says, have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. This is a man who goes from thinking he had pulled the wool over everybody's eyes to being broken before God. And he says, oh, have mercy on me. What's happening right here in David's life at this point in the story reminds me of two facts. And the first fact is this. You can be a man or woman after God's own heart and still sin. Hear that? You can be a man or woman after God's own heart and still sin. God knows that we're going to break his rules. Do you remember when he brought the Israelites out of Egypt and he says, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people, but we've got to have some guidelines And so he gave them the Ten Commandments. And these Ten Commandments were to be the guide of how they're going to interact with God and how they're going to interact with each other. And God set these guidelines up because we are a sinful people. And he's like, I'm going to guide you through and help you navigate this land and this world of, of sin. We have the Ten Commandments. And the second fact that I'm exposed to from David's story at this point is this. Our sin doesn't prevent God from giving us the most remarkable gift that he can give, which is forgiveness. Forgiveness. God is like, we see this in this interaction with David, God is like the father in Luke 15 of the prodigal son, whose son goes off and squanders his father's wealth and his father waits for him to come home and the son finally comes home humbly and the father is waiting for him and he wraps him up in open arms and and all is forgiven. Welcome back to the family. This is the kind of image that we get of God here with David and it leads us to one of the greatest verses in all the New Testament, which is 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 that simply says, if we confess our sins, he, who is the he? It's God. God is faithful and just and will do what? He will forgive us of our sins. And that is good news. That's good news. It's one of the great promises found in the Bible. So David says, I have sinned. And then he also says, I have sinned against the Lord. So there's a further recognition. Not only had he done wrong, but my sin is directly against you. And I feel like there's this moment in Scripture where God's like, oh, that's my boy. Now you're getting it. Now you're getting it. I've come to this conclusion based on my understanding of Scripture. And I really believe this, that God is more interested in how we respond 
to breaking his rules than simply punishing us for disobeying. I really do believe that. God wants to know what's in our hearts, that we are humble, that we are teachable, and that we're willing to learn from our mistakes. He wants to know that. Or are we proud, defensive, and oblivious to our need of God's mercy and, and love? I think it'd be very easy to, to make the argument that David committed a series of sins that would be among the worst found in Scripture. But in spite of that, David realized that he had sinned most of all against God. Can I show you something very, very, very cool? Or at least to me, I think it's very cool. Do you have your, your regular Bible with you today? If not, there's some around in front of you. Could you grab one of those? And could you just open up to the New Testament book of Hebrews chapter 11? I love Hebrews chapter 11. It's one of those great chapters in the New Testament, and it's been given the nickname of the Hall of Fame of Faith because what we see in Hebrews chapter 11, 11 is this long list of people who prove themselves to be faithful, and we learn about their stories all throughout the Bible. Well, what you're going to see is you turn to, to Hebrews chapter 11, and you find your way down to verse 32, you're going to find somebody's name there. Do you know whose name you're going to see? King David. King David made it to the hall of fame of faith. His name is recorded as one of those men that trusted God and was a faithful man after God's own heart. And his name is forever recorded there in Hebrews chapter 11. Now look at it again. Can you tell me what you don't see? I don't see an asterisk by David's name. I don't see a little marker or a little footnote that says, see below. And I don't see anything there that reads, David was a man after God's own heart, except for that one time that he really messed up. You know, the time that he was up on the roof and he committed all those sins. Other than that, he was okay. By what's not there tells me a lot about how God sees forgiveness. There's no asterisk by David's name because... He responded and said, I have sinned against the Lord. And to this day, David in the land of Israel is still revered as their greatest king. And I was just over there, as you know, for a few weeks, and they talked so highly of King David. He's the greatest king they've ever had. And you know what? There's talk to him, talk about him as a man after God's own heart. You know what never came up once? Yeah, except for that little thing. Except for that one thing with Uriah and Bathsheba. Other than that, he was great. He's not remembered for that. He recognized his sin, he repented of his sin, and he's still known as a man after God's own heart. What does this mean for us today? What message is there that we can take home with us? And I think the first one is this. We cannot be perfect. We can't do it. Now, I say that not as a free pass to sin. So please don't hear me to say that sin is not a big deal. It's just a free pass. That's not what I mean at all. It's an acknowledgement that ever since Adam and Eve introduced sin into the world, we have been living in a broken world. And sin runs rampant, and we're all susceptible to its temptations. And even the Bible tells us very clearly, for all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. That's something foundational to what we must understand about our faith. I think sometimes we falsely believe that when we become Christians, we will never ever sin again. Can I share something with you? That no one has ever been able to pull that off. You know that? Nobody. 
We can't be perfect. And if you're, you're here today and you are out looking for a church filled with perfect people, you can search high and low in this place, but you will not find one perfect person here. Starting with New Life's pastor, you can search high and low, but you're not going to find perfection here. Now, I will tell you that the kind of people that you will find right here at New Life Christian Church, you will find a congregation full of faulty people. That's what you're going to find. We are a people who are finding healing and in, in God's forgiveness. That's what you're going to find. You're going to find people who range the spectrum from above average to failing when it comes to faith when it comes to Bible understanding, when it comes to spirituality, when it comes to service of our Lord, when it comes to our personal witness, we range the map. We are a fellowship of the imperfect, but desiring to grow and to fulfill God's purposes in our lives and through the church. That's what you'll find here. So we're going to mess up because we can't be perfect. The second takeaway I have from what David went through is this. When we sin, we need to repent very quickly. When we sin, repent quickly. Now just think about the details of the story that we've read. There was at least nine months that David kept this sin a secret. For nine months, he let what he did fester. And if you continue to read Psalm chapter 51, you know the one where he's pouring out his heart after being confronted by, by Nathan? This is what he wrote. This is on page 164 of your story. He said, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. That's his way of saying, all of this has been weighing on me very heavily. And he's saying, let me hear joy. Let me hear gladness. Do you, do you understand what he's saying he's not hearing? He's not hearing joy during this season of secrecy. He's not glad. He's not hearing these things. What are the things that he is hearing? It's not joy. It's not gladness. What's he hearing instead? Well, I can guarantee you what he's heard a lot of is the cries of Bathsheba as she mourns her husband. He's hearing a lot of that. And he knows that that happened because of him. What he is hearing are the rumors of what people are saying about their king. He's not ignorant. He can walk the hallways and he can hear when people are saying, did you hear what King David did? Did you know that that's actually his baby? Did you know, did you know, did you know, did you know? He hears those things. What else did he hear? I think David, if we're being honest, probably heard the groans of his own conscience. Do you think that the God's word has not been running through his mind, thou shalt not give false testimony. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit murder. For nine months at least, David's refusing to acknowledge what he has done and to repent. And I do believe that what he wrote in the Psalms is an acknowledgement that life really has deep down been miserable and all he does he wants God to forgive him and he wants to hear joy and gladness and to one day rejoice again because right now he feels crushed so when we repent we need to do it quickly when we have sinned we need to repent do it quickly and then the third thing I, I take away from this 
is that when God forgives, he does mean it. When God forgives, he does mean it. David goes on in his Psalm 51, it's on page 164, he says, hide your face from my sin and blot out my iniquity. Do you know what David is asking of God right here when he says blot out my sin and, 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 and hide your face and from my sins and blot out all my iniquity? That's David's way of asking God, would you please forgive and forget what I've done? That's what, God, I'm just, I'm asking you to please forgive and forget what I've done. Hide your face, blot out my iniquities. And what David is saying, and what other things I read in Scripture, leads me to, to, this, to this conclusion. That forgiving and forgetting sins is what God does the best, and it's what he delights in the most. I look at how God interacts with his people, and forgetting and forgiving is what he does best. And forgiving is what he delights in the most. I think there are those of us who look at our past sins or even the sins maybe that even today God has brought right up to the forefront of your, of your, of your mind. And you might be thinking to yourself, God can't forgive that. God can't forgive somebody like me. Maybe you can't even forgive yourselves and you're thinking, well, why could God ever forgive? I can't forgive myself. Why would he do that? I just hope he takes notice of me because I'm here today. David knew that even though he was so unworthy, he knew that God forgave him. He knew it. And that God had given him a clean slate. It's like a big chalkboard that God just erased, and it's, it's a clean slate again. David knew that. We, we learned that from his writings. What do you think David felt when he knew that God had forgiven him? I think relieved, overjoy, and clean. And that's how God wants us to feel when we turn our sins over to him. And once you repent and you turn your sins to God, he's never going to bring it up again. Now here's how I can say that with confidence. I'd like for you to close your eyes and I would like to read one last part of scripture to you. And I'd like for you just to, to just think on the words of the prophet Micah. It's in Micah chapter 7, verse 18. We get this glimpse, as good as any as you're going to see in all of Scripture, of how God views sin and forgiveness. It goes like this. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us you will tread our sins underfoot and listen to this last part and hurl all of our iniquities into the depths of the sea so that when god forgives he he really does forgive and this is an acknowledgement that when it comes to sin and forgiveness god truly does forgive and he forgets it really does something he delights in a whole lot it's like God taking those sins that he's forgiven and he's casting them into the deepest part of the sea. Do you understand what that would mean to somebody during that day? This is long before sonar. This is long before deep ship recovery. This is long before underwater subs. This is long. If something fell into the deep part of the sea, it was gone forever. Never to be seen again. So the prophet said, that's what God thinks about sin and forgiveness. 
And they would have understood it. He throws it out in the sea, never to be seen from or heard from again. Now, I don't know what that does to you, but I can tell you what that does to me. It makes me glad. It makes me rejoice. It makes me know I'm clean. So why don't we just pray and let's thank God for being a